Welcome to the Tech Meme Right Home for Friday, May 19th, 2023. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, OpenAI has launched an official chat GPT app for iPhones and iPads. Android coming soon. The Supreme Court actually propped up Section 230, allowing it to live another day. Apple, as an example of why companies are looking to keep the AI in-house. And of course, the weekend long-read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. OpenAI has launched a free chat GPT app for iOS in the U.S., offering the web versions features plus history sync across devices and speech input via OpenAI's Whisper, quoting Ars Technica. Like on ChatGPT's website, users must log into the ChatGPT app with an OpenAI account to use it, and the AI processing takes place off the device on OpenAI's servers, so it requires an internet connection. ChatGPT Plus subscribers have access to similar features as the web version, such as GPT-4, promises of early access to new features, and faster response times. In our tests, we did not see beta access for ChatGPT with browsing or ChatGPT plugins. In our early experiments with the new app, we found a bare-bones but functional application that serves as a much better interface to ChatGPT than attempting to use the ChatGPT website through a mobile browser. Early tests of the Whisper-based voice recognition proved buggy, often returning errors, perhaps due to overloaded servers on OpenAI's part, but those issues might be resolved soon. OpenAI has started the app's rollout in the U.S. with plans to expand to additional countries in the coming weeks. We're eager to see how you use the app. As we gather user feedback, we're committed to continuous feature and safety improvements for ChatGPT, writes OpenAI in announcement blog post. According to OpenAI, the release of the ChatGPT app for iOS is a step towards our goal of converting state-of-the-art research into practical tools while continually increasing their accessibility, end quote. OpenAI has also confirmed plans for the launch of the ChatGPT app for Android devices soon, extending the availability of this tool to a broader range of mobile users. In true App Store fashion, a search for the app within the App Store app itself resulted in many junk results, so your best bet for finding the app comes from clicking a direct App Store link on your device like this one, end quote. They said this one because they have a direct link in the piece. I'll try to remember to put that link also in the show notes, but if I don't, click through on the piece and you'll find the direct link. This is a big deal. The Supreme Court of the United States declined to address Section 230 protections in one case and shielded Twitter from liability for terror-related content in another case. Bottom line here, between these two cases, Section 230 lives another day, quoting CNN. The Supreme Court handed Silicon Valley a massive victory on Thursday as it protected online platforms from two lawsuits that legal experts had warned could have upended the internet. The twin decisions preserve social media companies' ability to avoid lawsuits stemming from terrorist-related content and are a defeat for tech industry critics who say platforms are unaccountable. In one of the two cases, Twitter versus Tamina, the Supreme Court ruled Twitter will not have to face accusations it aided and abetted terrorism when it hosted tweets created by the terror group ISIS. The court also dismissed Gonzalez versus Google, another closely watched case about social media content moderation, sidestepping an invitation to narrow a key federal liability shield for websites known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Thursday's decision leaves a lower court ruling in place that protected social media platforms from a broad range of content moderation lawsuits. The Twitter decision was unanimous, 
and written by Justice Clarence Thomas, who said that social media platforms are little different from other digital technologies. It might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use platforms like defendants for illegal and sometimes terrible ends, Thomas wrote, but the same could be said of cell phones, email, or the internet generally, end quote. Thomas's opinion reflected the court's struggle to identify in oral arguments what kinds of speech ought to trigger liability for social media and what kind deserve protections. I think the court recognized the importance of these platforms for billions of people for communicating and stepped back from interfering with that, said Samir Jain, vice president of policy at the Center for Democracy and Technology, a group that filed briefs in support of the tech industry. For months, many legal experts had viewed the Twitter and Google cases as a sign the court might seek sweeping changes to Section 230, a law that has faced bipartisan criticism in connection with tech companies' content moderation decisions. Thomas, in particular, has expressed vocal interest in hearing a Section 230 case. Expectations of a hugely disruptive outcome in both cases prompted what Kate Klonick, a law professor at St. John's University, described as an insane flood of -of friend-of-the-court briefs. As oral arguments unfolded, however, and as justices visibly grappled with the complexities of internet speech, the likelihood of massive changes to the law seemed to recede, end quote. Indeed, over in Tech Dirt, Mike Masnick, who always seems to be smart about these things, says this could bode well for Section 30's continued survival. Quote, Basically, my read on this is that the court is effectively saying that if you create algorithms that are just designed to take inputs and provide outputs based on those inputs, you're in the clear. The only hypothetical where you might face some liability is if you designed an algorithm to deliberately produce violative content, like an AI tool whose sole job is to defame people or to take any input and purposefully try to convince you to engage in criminal acts. Those seem unlikely to actually exist in the first place, so the language above actually seems, again, to be pretty useful. The ruling again doubles down on the fact that there was nothing specific to the social media sites that was deliberately designed to aid terrorists, and that makes the plaintiff's argument nonsense. Overall, this was kind of a weird case and a weird ruling. Supreme Court of the United States seems to have recognized they never should have taken the case in the first place, and this ruling effectively allowed them to back out of making a ruling on 230 that they would regret. However, Instead, Justice Thomas, of all people, more or less laid out all of the reasons why 230 exists and why we want that in place to make sure that liability applies to the party actually making something violative rather than the incidental tools used in the process. It also serves to reinforce a key point. Contrary to the belief of many, 230 is not the singular law that protects internet websites from liability. Lots of things do as well. 230 really only serves as an express lane to get to the same exact result. That's important because it saves money, time, and resources from being wasted on cases that are going to fail in the end anyway. But it doesn't mean that changing or removing 230 won't magically make companies liable for things their users do. It won't. I've mentioned before looking for companies working to bring generative AI on-premises, as it were, and here's why. Sources tell the journal that Apple has restricted internal use of ChatGPT, also GitHub Copilot and other external AI tools, due to concerns over potential leaks of confidential data. So are companies going to build these themselves internally? Can they? Quote, Apple is concerned workers who use these types of programs could release confidential data according to the document. When people use these models, data is sent back to the developer to enable continued improvements, presenting the potential for an organization to unintentionally share proprietary or confidential information. 
OpenAI disclosed in March that it took ChatGPT temporarily offline because a bug allowed some users to see the titles from a user's chat history. Apple is known for its rigorous security measures to guard information about future products and consumer data. A number of organizations have also grown wary of the technology as its workers have begun using it for everything from writing emails and marketing material to coding software. J.P. Morgan Chase and Verizon have barred use. David Banks, chancellor of New York City Schools, said in an opinion column published Thursday that it rescinded its ChatGPT ban. Amazon.com has urged its engineers who want to use ChatGPT for coding assistance to use its own internal AI tool, a spokeswoman recently told the journal. Apple is also working on its own large language models, people familiar with the matter said, end quote. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Time for the Weekend Long Read Suggestions. We've mentioned before how with all this AI talk, one name that doesn't come up very much yet is Apple. But also, have you noticed Meta doesn't come up that much as well? Well... It's interesting. As this whole open-source versus platformed AI debate unfolds, Meta has chosen an interesting side. Quoting the New York Times, In February, Meta made an unusual move in the rapidly evolving world of artificial intelligence. It decided to give away its AI crown jewels. The Silicon Valley giant, which owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, had created an AI technology called Llama 
that can produce online chatbots. But instead of keeping the technology to itself, Meta released the system's underlying computer code into the wild. Academics, government researchers, and others who gave their email address to Meta could download the code once the company had vetted the individual. Essentially, Meta was giving its AI technology away as open-source software, computer code that can be freely copied, modified, and reused, providing outsiders with everything they needed to quickly build chatbots of their own. The platform that will win will be the open one, Jan LeCun, Meta's chief AI scientist, said in an interview. As a race to lead AI heats up across Silicon Valley, Meta is standing out from its rivals by taking a different approach to the technology. Driven by its founder and chief executive Mark Zuckerberg, Meta believes that the smartest thing to do is share its underlying AI engines as a way to spread its influence and ultimately move faster toward the future. Its actions contrast with those of Google and OpenAI, the two companies leading the new AI arms race, worried that AI tools like chatbots will be used to spread disinformation, hate speech, and other toxic content. Those companies are becoming increasingly secretive about the methods and software that underpin their AI products. But Meta said it saw no reason to keep its code to itself. The growing secrecy at Google and OpenAI is a, quote, huge mistake, Dr. LeCun said, and a really bad take on what is happening. He argues that consumers and governments will refuse to embrace AI unless it is outside the control of companies like Google and Meta. Do you want every AI system to be under the control of a couple of powerful American companies, he asked, end quote. Next, I wonder why this hasn't happened before, but I guess it's always happened. It just doesn't come to light very often. From Wired, an investigation found that hundreds of freelancers were hired as customer service staff used to catfish users into paying for subscriptions to niche dating and hookup sites. Catfishing on an industrial scale, as they put it, quote, once a user is hooked in the conversation, the aim is always to stretch out the talking phase. If a New York user asks to meet up with your virtual, the freelancer is to say, let me check my schedule and let you know, says Liam, even if you are writing from Budapest. If the user asks to move off to a free messaging app, the freelancers must write through the virtuals, I prefer to stay in here until I know you better, or I feel safer on this app until we are better acquainted, and so on. Wired discussed VDesk's business model with Volkan Topali and Feng Zhao Wang, who research romance fraud and criminology at Georgia State University's Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group. It's possible this falls under romance scamming. What do you think, Topali says. I'm not sure, but wow, the system is efficient, says Wang. In any case, it's like the owners are trying to cover their backs with the T's and C's. The niche dating portals, which have names like Snapdate, Horny Spot, Sex Dater, Discreet Meets, OnlyFlirts.com, Passions Love, and Be My Pair, funnel users into the system and usually include lengthy terms and conditions. Most of them say something along the lines of, we may use our system profiles at our discretion to communicate with users to enhance our users' entertainment experience. According to Topali, the language is ambiguous enough that it might let people think, hey, maybe I'm talking to a porn star, or that maybe only a small number of them are fakes, end quote. Then this piece from Grub Street has gotten a lot of chatter overnight. How TikTok is taking over restaurants, quote, the camera zooms in on Goldberg's bug-eyed, orgasmic expression as a strand of cheese stretches from a mozzarella stick to his mouth. Let me just say this. The spicy rigatoni blew carboni out of the stratosphere. The cheesy Maz bites were ridiculous. These homemade balls had me dancing, and the truffle cream pasta was the knockout punch, he said. Goldberg's video got one and a half million views and led to a huge spike in reservations, Isadori says. Spurred by the success, Goldberg next suggested Isadori host an influencer party. They invited as many TikTokers as they could. Several dozen showed up. All the food was free and everyone filmed. It was like 
Food's on the table. We're shaving cheese on top of it, Isidori recalls. Everyone's drinking wine, the music's playing, let the cameras roll, end quote. Compared to traditional publicity, the cost of comping a meal is relatively low, though influencers with more than a million followers often want cash too. To Goldberg, even these rates are justified. For some restaurants, it would be stupid for them not to pay $10,000 for the day, he says. I know that sounds high, but you're genuinely getting a million-plus views. How does he quantify this? Dozens of restaurants have shared case studies with us detailing the before-and-after impact of our videos, he claims, end quote. Finally, from rest of world, signs that Japan's tech scene, which, we have to be honest, has been and also ran for a long time, is finally waking up. Quote, Show Hayashi might be a walking cliche in San Francisco or Austin. The 33-year-old founder with two successful startups and a string of degrees to his name met me in a light-filled co-working space before jetting overseas for a weekend of meetings. But here in Japan, Hayashi is a new breed of revolutionary, a graduate of the elite University of Tokyo. His expected path would have been to settle into a lifetime job, perhaps as an international diplomat or at a time-tested corporate empire like Mitsubishi. Hayashi's turning point came when he attended a massive startup conference in Singapore in 2010 and realized Japan didn't have a single representative. Frustrated, he asked to become one and found a new calling, entrepreneurship. I realized that diplomats don't create anything. They just negotiate based on what's there. Hayashi said, I wanted to create. It changed my life. Japan is the third richest nation in the world, but has only managed to produce some 10 unicorns. Compare that to over 600 unicorns in the U.S. and more than 300 in China. Its tech startup scene has for years been held back by siloed and intransient corporate leaders and an aging, risk-averse populace whose fear of innovation turned a once-futuristic nation into a digital backwater. Over the past several years, though, more and more people like Hayashi have been straying from their expected path. Their choices are being validated by record amounts of funding flowing into tech startups, new city government initiatives that support fledgling entrepreneurs, and tax breaks. Combined with the behavioral circuit breaker of the pandemic, it's a turning point. Japan's tech scene is perhaps finally beginning to free itself from decades of inertia, end quote. I have to say, I've seen this. Not only have I been hearing from more founders coming from Japan of late than I ever have before, I'm hearing more and more examples of founders interested in moving to Japan to do their startups. Alrighty, two new bonus episodes again this weekend. It's sort of been book month on the show, hasn't it? Well, I've got another one for you. I believe we're going to talk to Brady Dale about his new book on Sam Bankman-Fried. I say I believe because I assume we are. This is another one where I actually haven't recorded it yet. I'm going to do that as soon as I hit publish on this. Assuming the internet doesn't eat that conversation, look for that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, another nugget from the Internet History Podcast, an interview with Amazon's first employee, the first person Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos hired back when they had just incorporated Amazon and were running it out of their house. Amazing, amazing entrepreneurial history. Enjoy that. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>